Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project. By me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today as we encounter a Crusader King. Name, Louis IX. Life, 1214-1270. Status, Saint, Feast, August 25th. Lord Jean of Joinville, Seneschal of Champagne, invited his friends and family to a week-long feast for Easter in the year of our Lord, 1248, and didn't tell them what he was really up to until Friday. Then he made the big announcement. He would join King Louis on his crusade. Jean made his arrangements and saw to the comfort of his widowed mother. He tried to make peace with any who were angry with him, for Jean knew that many who went on crusade did not return. He would lead nine knights into battle, and each of these would bring warriors as well. Jean and another lord split the cost of a ship, and they sailed from Marseille to the staging ground of Cyprus. As the ship set sail, they sang Veni Creator Spiritus. Jean had been in King Louis's army before. Louis had come to kingship at twelve, but his mother was regent for about eight more years and a trusted advisor for the rest of his life. From St. Louis's Rules for Men Reverence your father and your mother. Willingly remember and keep their commandments. And be inclined to believe their good counsels. Louis was a tall, slender young man. He had his mother's piety, attending Mass daily, even wearing a hair shirt to mortify his body. He was a serious young man, who always had time to help the poor, and to talk about God. The great lords of France assessed the young king as good, but weak. Lord Hugh of Lusignan thought that this would be an easy monarch to push around, and made an alliance with the King of England. Louis had ridden out with a smaller army, but when Louis threw himself into a cavalry charge along with the Knights of France, the rebel army was crushed, sending Lord Hugh and the King of England fleeing for safety. Back then, Jean had been just a lad of seventeen, watching with stars in his eyes as the King rode to victory. Now, Jean of Joinville was an experienced man of twenty-three years old. He sat in the boat, worrying. Would there be enough money? Would the boat sink? To his relief, after a few days he spotted land. At first he couldn't figure out why the sailors were so agitated, until they told him the land they were seeing was Africa, and they were off the African coast, in waters hunted by Muslim slavers. Now John had something else to worry and pray about. Despite the dangers, the ship made it safely to Cyprus, 
which was now a kind of staging area for crusaders. But there was one problem. Jean had vastly underestimated the costs of crusading. He was almost broke. Fortunately for him, King Louis was looking for a man of Jean's rank to directly assist him, and Jean went to find the king. When Jean arrived, he found the tall, slim, quiet figure he remembered. But ruling, and now planning a crusade, was exhausting, and King Louis's hair was already going white. The kings of France were generally clean-shaven, but a penitent pilgrim might grow a beard, and Louis had grown his out. He was still careful, moderate, quiet, and controlled, but by now he was utterly in command. He was glad to see Jean of Joinville again. For Jean, this encounter would change the course of his life. We see it through another fold in history, through Jean's recollections as an old man of 85, long after St. Louis' terrible death in ashes and disappointment. All those years later, the tale comes alive in Jean's memory. He remembers the colors, the excitement in the air, the glory to be won, and moving through it all, the figure of his mentor and hero, Louis the King. Louis's impact on Jean was profound. Jean remembered so much about him. The way Louis said a man should dress moderately, neither a fop nor a slob. The way Louis would think about what you said and after the conversation, sometimes reevaluate it. The way Louis could administer justice so fairly that everyone went away satisfied. The importance Louis placed on God. From St. Louis's Rules for Men. Suffer it not that any ill be spoken of God or his saints in your presence without taking prompt vengeance. Or just the way Louis always found time to tell bedtime stories of the great kings and heroes of the past to his own children so that they, too, would grow up and reach for greatness. The Crusaders had been trickling onto Cyprus for some time, and Louis was almost ready for the next step. He had been planning the crusade for several years. It had started in 1244, when he got very sick. At one point he was lying in bed when he heard his servants arguing over whether he had died, and he just barely managed to croak out that he was not dead yet but when he was well enough to really speak, his first action was to ask for the cross. Louis was pledging himself to go on the great military pilgrimage of a Christian, crusade. By taking the cross, Louis was swearing an oath to go to the Holy Land and fight for God, trying to take the holy city of Jerusalem and make it safe for Christian pilgrims. Sometimes when a king went on crusade, the people were relieved. But Louis was a good king. His reforms to the legal system had helped many find justice, and had made him popular and respected. His nobles didn't want him to leave. His mother complained about the crusade idea. The bishop worried that without Louis, things would collapse in France. So, the bishop found a way for Louis to not go on crusade. He ruled that Louis was not in full control of his mind when he said he'd go on crusade, effectively releasing him from his oath. Louis listened patiently and accepted the bishop's decision. From 
St. Louis Rules for Men If anyone have entered into a suit against you for any injury or wrong which he may believe you have done to him, be always for him and against yourself in the presence of your counsel, without showing that you think much of your case, until the truth be made known concerning it. The bishop concluded that talk of crusade was all behind them now. Louis had been unwell and hadn't understood what he was saying. Now he was released from the crusading obligation, and things could go on as they were. Louis thanked him. Then Louis asked the bishop whether, in the bishop's estimation, Louis had fully recovered. I imagine an indulgent smile on the lips of the bishop as he said that yes, Louis was surely better now. Good, Louis told the bishop and those around him, his eyes hardening. Now that everyone agreed he was fully in command of his faculties, he was taking the cross. The plan for the crusade was, paradoxically, to strike at Egypt. The thinking behind this plan had been developed some decades earlier, at the end of Richard the Lionheart's Third Crusade, but it was basically an issue of geography. The Christian states in Palestine were a strip along the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. But that strip sat right in the middle of the powerful Ayyubid Empire. The reason it was hard to hold the Holy Land was that there was a war on virtually all fronts. King Richard had realized that the solution was to control Cairo, severing Ayyubid control over Egypt and effectively squeezing the Ayyubids between their Muslim and pagan Mongol rivals to the east and the Christian lands to the west. That was why the conquest of Egypt was the plan for the shambolic Fifth Crusade. Left in the lurch by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, who promised to come and lead but then didn't show up, a disorganized band of crusaders had captured the coastal Egyptian city of Damietta, but then ended up stuck and defeated when they tried to march south down the Nile to capture Cairo. Louis understood that the plan was basically a good one, but that it had been badly executed. He was determined to do it right. The crusade was once again going to start in Damietta. Louis sailed across with 1,500 ships. The Ayyubids had heard that he was coming, but they were still surprised when they saw the fleet. They sent out scouts, only to have the scout ships sunk as the fleet closed in. Unfortunately for Louis, that gave the Muslim army plenty of time to assemble along the coast. But they weren't expecting Louis's amphibious assault. Small craft began to drop French warriors on the beach. Jean of Joinville was there, heart beating as his men rowed him and his knights forward. The horses would have to wait on the ships for now. Jean and his knights jumped into the water, splashing onto shore, as around them French warriors cried for the protection of St. Denis and came on. Jean saw one knight jump too early, when the water was still too deep, and the weight of the man's armor carried him down. The Muslim army massed for a cavalry charge. King Louis was watching from his warship, pulled in as close to shore as was possible. His advisors wanted him to watch safe from danger, but that was not Louis's way, and he shook their arms off him and jumped into the water. It came up to his armpits, and he slogged through the surf to join his men. The men planted their shields in the sand and jammed their spears in next to them, creating a bristling wall to deter the cavalry. Behind that wall, 
the crusaders waited, ready to fight. But after some feints, the Muslim forces decided they did not want to charge the growing line of men-at-arms and turned and rode back into the city. The Christians fortified their landing area, waiting for the next move. To their surprise, it didn't come, and when they sent out scouts, they learned why. The Ayyubid sultan was sick. His death would lead to a struggle that would see the Mamluk Turks take power. For the moment, this worked to the advantage of the Christians, and indeed, Christian slaves had revolted in Damietta. The defenders of Damietta, demoralized, had abandoned the city. Louis entered the city, reverently, humbly, processing in with his queen, Margaret, beside him. The churches were reconsecrated, and Damietta was fortified. Soon, a better organized Muslim army arrived, but Louis stayed in Damietta. He was waiting for his brother to bring reinforcements from France. Waiting wasn't easy. At night, assassins and saboteurs moved through the Christian camp. But finally, in 1249, the reinforcements arrived. It was time to march south. This was the most important and difficult part of the expedition, and Louis's Muslim enemies knew it as well as he did. Muslims had long ago learned that they could not easily withstand the cavalry charge of the European knight. But if knights could be lured out of formation, isolated, tired out in the desert, chasing light cavalry, they could easily be surrounded or destroyed with arrows. The march would test the discipline of the crusaders. Fortunately for the French crusaders, they had with them the warrior monks of the Knights Templar and Hospitaller, who had long experience with this kind of fighting. Louis's plan was to follow the Nile all the way to Cairo. As everyone knows, Jean tells us, the Nile does not originate in Cairo. It originates in Eden, and that is why, if you can get close enough to the source, you just toss a net in the Nile and fish out cinnamon and ginger and such good things that are floating down from the earthly paradise. But even the Zaltan had not been to the source of the Nile although he had sent searchers equipped with a strange, long-lasting, twice-baked type of bread, called a biscuit. The crusaders marched along the river, and they were harried by Muslim riders, as expected. The knights grumbled, but stayed in position. The Templars watched the land. When one detachment of Muslims drew in too close, the Templar marshal brother Reynold recognized that they had made a tactical error the water was blocking their retreat. So he led his men out to crush them against the water, falling easily back into step with the column after it was done. But things began to go wrong as the Christians approached the city of Mansura. The enemies seemed to be retreating before them, and the crusaders easily routed them. It was too easy, the Templars realized. They moved forward slowly, Cautiously. But the French crusaders, with Louis's own brother in the lead, charged out ahead. Perhaps the French knights wanted to show the Templars what they could do. Jean of Joinville thought it was a simple miscommunication. The Templar messenger tried to convince one of the French knights in the lead to slow down, but as it happened, this particular knight was almost deaf. Not wanting to spread their forces, the Templars sped up 
and charged into the city as the Muslim trap closed around them. Unbeknownst to the Crusaders, they had been trapped by one of the best. They had just met the cruel Mamluk general and future sultan, Baybars, who had proved to be one of Christendom's most implacable enemies. The knights of the crusade fought hard, but they had now sacrificed their tactical advantage. Louis's brother was killed, along with many of the Templars. The elite strike force of the crusade had just been wiped out. Trying to understand the situation, Jean himself was nearly killed, running into enemy forces and pinned down by a Muslim so that he couldn't get at his spear or sword. Fortunately, Jean had a lot of weapons, and was able to wriggle up and grab an extra sword he kept on his horse and fight his way to his feet in a running retreat. He was making a last stand with a group of knights when King Louis arrived and took control of the situation. Never did I see him so finely accoutred, for he towered head and shoulders above his followers, with a gilded helmet on his head and a German sword in his hand. Jean was saved, and he rode at Louis's side as the main body of the army pressed into the Turkish camp. The fighting was over, and the Crusader army hadn't been destroyed. In a sense, they had won, but they had taken terrible losses, and the Muslims still held Mansoura. King Louis was no fool. The best of his army had been destroyed. The king's brother was dead, killed in a foolhardy charge that had sacrificed the best fighting men of the crusade. All Louis had to show for it was the capture of a Muslim camp. As they rode into the camp after this victory, Jean looked over and saw that the king had tears in his eyes. The now much-reduced crusader force had little choice but to try and hold their position. In the camp, food began to run out, and even dogs and cats were consumed. The crusaders held their position through Lent, and then Easter. Jean was so sick that he lay in bed as a priest said Mass, but the priest was sick too and toppled over in the middle. Jean got out and held the man upright so he could complete the sacrament. Soon after Easter, Louis realized that something needed to be done, and he decided to retreat to Damietta. Unfortunately, the plans were observed by the Muslim forces. Louis tried to evacuate by boat. Some boats made it up the river to Damietta, and Louis was about to embark when he heard that the Muslims were attacking. He was so sick that he kept falling over, but he was not one to let his people go undefended. Louis picked up his sword and went back to where the fighting was, and so it happened that he was made a captive. Jean was captured as well, and although they were not held together, Jean later learned that they had had similar experiences. Soldiers and mere knights were threatened with death if they didn't convert to Islam. For Louis, the threat was torture. Torture if he did not give up claims to lands and castles throughout the Middle East. Louis stoically told his captors that they could torture him if they wished, but he wasn't going to do that. He wasn't going to swear blasphemous oaths either. In fact, even in captivity, Louis insisted on being provided his two chaplains and his daily mass. Finally, an arrangement was reached. Louis would return Damietta to Muslim control in exchange for his freedom. 
and he would pay the ransom for tens of thousands of his own men. And so it was that Louis and Jean found themselves released from captivity. King Louis was still sick. He spent the next little while trying to do some good. He no longer had much of a crusading army, but he had money. He spent it fortifying the Holy Land against the invasion he knew was sure to come soon. Jean became one of his closest advisors. When King Louis returned to France, he threw himself into the improvement of his kingdom and helping the poor. As he saw it, the poor gained heaven by their patient sufferings, but for rich men like him, conscious effort was required. His household provided dinner to 120 poor men daily, and Louis himself would often invite old men who had lost everything to join him at his own table. I imagine the king listening to their stories, and on the way out, Louis would slip them some silver so that they could regain a little bit of dignity. Louis was creating a golden age in France. He reformed the legal system, taking the side of ordinary people against exploitation by their overlords. He was equally quick to punish economic exploitation and dealt harshly with those who exploited the poor with usury. Soon, even foreign kings were coming to Louis for help arbitrating their disputes. Everyone knew he would be fair-minded and insightful. Louis's conversation partners included scholars and holy men, even, on one memorable occasion, St. Thomas Aquinas. Louis was a man of insight himself. When someone excitedly told him of a Eucharistic miracle, whereby the host began to bleed, which is actually a fairly common form of miracle across history, Louis had no interest in going to see it. He explained to his friends that he was already aware of what the host became during Mass. Things were going well, but there were those in the kingdom who began to whisper that perhaps the time was once again right for crusade. Around that time, even though he was far away, at home in his castle, Jean of Joinville dreamed about King Louis. He dreamed Louis was in church, being dressed in vestments by priests, and the vestments were the color of blood. When Jean mentioned the dream to his chaplain, the chaplain interpreted it as meaning that Louis would once again go on crusade, and a little would be accomplished. Jean advised Louis against going, but Louis went, taking three of his sons. To my mind, they committed a deadly sin who encouraged his going, Jean said. Louis was repeating the same basic stratagem that he had tried before, except that this time the fleet sailed through storms and bad weather and landed at Tunis in 1270. Louis laid siege to the city and waited for the rest of his men to arrive under the command of another of his brothers. Then, someone on board one of the ships got sick. Soon, many more were sick. The papal legate got sick. Louis's eldest son got sick. Finally, Louis got sick. He was so close. So close to the ambition of generations of Christians. But Louis could feel God closing the door. He called on the saints, especially St. James, a warrior saint, and St. Denis, the patron of France. 
but the great crusader king was slipping away. Louis cried out for Jerusalem, the city that he, more than any man alive, had sacrificed to save. And then, accepting the end, he wrote out the list of manly guidance for his son that I've been quoting as St. Louis' Rules for Men, and he followed his own advice. From St. Louis' Rules for Men Fix your whole heart upon God, and love him with all your strength, for without this no one can be saved or be of any worth. Louis had his men lay out a bed and strew it with ash, and that was where he died on August 25th. By the time his brother arrived with the rest of the troops, Louis was dead, and the Eighth Crusade had failed. One by one, Baybars would capture the last remnants of the Crusader states, until finally, all that was left of Crusade was the dream. Back in France, Jean of Joinville mourned the death of his king and friend. The country mourned. Christendom mourned. Pope Gregory X called Louis a model of blessed living to other rulers, one whom we loved with a pure heart when living, now called back home. Miracles of St. Louis spread over Christendom like late-blooming flowers. After he had heard the news, at night, Jean again dreamed of his old friend. In the dream, Louis looked as he always did, but Jean had the sense that the burden of kingship and responsibility had been lifted from his shoulders. This Louis was more joyful, lighter of heart, and Jean understood that he was saying goodbye. But he also understood that his friend who had died was now something more than he had been. He was a saint, a great saint, a manly saint. Jean told Louis, in the dream, that he was going to build him a chapel, a home at Châtillon. A home? Well, maybe. But St. Louis had already arrived at the home he had always sought. Smiling, St. Louis told his old friend, By my faith, Sir de Joinville, I am in no such hurry to leave this place. (laughs) ¶¶